spit it out on y'all. <laughs> Just a couple announcements that we have today. Um, well, we're in fall, officially in fall. It is, what, October 3rd today? I feel like summer just kind of flew by. I didn't even get to celebrate or anything like that, but it's okay. Um, so now that we have October now is coming, it's here, we are going to have a costume parade for our nursery and children's church and youth group on the 31st, um, Sunday morning. So I wanted something for the kids to do. I know... The past two years of their schooling, it's been kind of odd, kind of off because of COVID. And I wanted to do something a little bit different and a little bit fun for them. Um, so please, if you have a child in nursery or children's church, uh, I will have more information. But this is just the basic knowledge on the 31st Sunday morning. Um, please have your child dress up and we are going to walk around the sanctuary in a parade and then we're gonna head back to our normal spot in the activity center. Um, please, please, please participate because I wanna celebrate and these kids deserve to celebrate as well. Uh, and speaking of kids, I'm gonna pass the mic to Auntie, uh, Miss Michelle, and she can talk about more. Miss Michelle. Good morning, everybody. Well, you know, every year, except for stinking last year because of stupid COVID, we do a kids' musical for Christmas. Well, doggone it, we're going to do one this year. Now, it's, I'm, I'm shortening it just a hair and, and making it a little less complicated just so that there, we don't have to have so many, like, practices just in case parents or grandparents, whoever's, like, worried about a lot of contact or whatever, but we're doing it. So, if you have children in children's church... They will be giving out CDs with four songs on it today and a short little script. Now, obviously, no um, lines have been assigned yet, but just if you will read through it with them just so they got an idea of what's going on. And we will assign, um, uh, uh, what am I saying, lines next week because next, starting next Sunday, like I normally do, as soon as worship is over, I'm going to go into Children's Church and we'll practice for 15 or 20 minutes. Now, this is not just for children's church. If you've got little kids, three, four, whatever, because you know they can sing. If they hear, go get a CD. If they want a line, I'll give them a line, okay? Also, some of the teenagers are going to be helping out as well. Now, some of the younger teenagers probably already know these songs, um, Dakota Harrison, Layla. Um, so Y'all already know all these songs. And some of you that's been it before, Haley and Lily, they probably already know the songs. So I'm going I'm to be depending on a lot of y'all to help as well. But your um, youth pastors will talk to you about that. So, bottom line, today, make sure if you have a child somewhere in that range and you want to get a CD and a script, they have them in Children's Church. Please get one as soon as church is over. And then starting next week, we're going to start practicing. So listen to those four songs over and over. I know. I'm sorry in advance. Y'all going to be sick of them. But the more they listen to it, the more confident they'll be to sing out. Please listen. Please read through the script so everybody knows what's going on. And this will be on December the 12th at our Seawalk Family Christmas night that we have every year. That's when they'll do their little Christmas play. All right? Everybody good? Thank you. All right. Now I'm going to have uh, Miss Don Cole, my aunt Don, and um, is it just you? I am Pat, Pat Mobley as well. They're going to come up here and talk about uh, 2022, right around the corner, the golf tournament. Super excited.
Good morning, Crossroads family. How are y'all today? And good morning to our online. She told me to move it closer. And to our online family as well. What we wanted to do today is have our kickoff for the golf tournament that we're going to be sponsoring, the church is sponsoring, this coming April. But we wanted to take you back a little bit and review what last year looked like. So for our first annual successful golf tournament, we held it at Indian River. We'll be having it again at Indian River. And what, how it came about, it was a vision. Jason Cato had a vision. Let's do the golf tournament so that we can raise money for the Turbyville Children's Home. And Norman McCurry, sitting on the back row, our men's ministry, he was the director then and still is. The two of them got together. Dawn and I were included into the men's ministry. And so from there, honorary members. And then as you all know, it takes teamwork to make a dream work. It, do, it didn't just happen with Jason and Norman. It took a lot of folks, a lot of volunteers. And it's always you got to plan it, you got to build it, and then you got to run with it. So that's what we did. At the tournament, we had Tim Moore, the director of the Turbyville Children's Home. They came from Turbyville with the team, and they played in the golf tournament. With Tim was uh, Perry Wooten. And then you also see our former pastor, Tim, up there on the screen. We, the uh, golf tournament started. We had a word of prayer, brought everybody together, and Pastor Tim kicked it off with prayer. And as you can see up on the screen, it was for all ages, from our seniors to our youth. And you may recognize some of the people up there in those photos. Here's a few more. It was a fun time for everybody. We could not have captured these moments without our photographers, Bethany Sharp. And then my son, Scott Miles, was also there. So between the two of them on Facebook, on their timelines, there are over 300 photos. So if you haven't had a chance to look at some of these precious moments, take time to do that. And then at the end, we had trophies. We had prizes. We just had a great time. Our first place winners was David Young from Lightscapes with his team. And then from Crossroads, our very own Fry team, Lamont, Mike, Stevie Hawkins, Janet's son, and that's Tony. They were the hardest working team there. <laughs> and, and we're looking forward to that again this coming April. So with that, our second annual spring golf tournament. Our date has been secured April the 28th of next year, again at Indian River Golf Club. Uh, Dawn, John, Brad, and I took a trip down to Turbyville on the 1st of September. 
we had an opportunity to really see what they need. And folks, they need a lot. This is the current state of 11 of the bathrooms in desperate need of repair, remodeling. Then they have completed one of the restrooms, and it looks like this. Y'all, it's gorgeous in person. It is. And from our tournament last year, we donated $16,000. Awesome. So that's enough for four restrooms. Total of 12. Do the math. We got a few more to go. So I'm going to turn it over to Dawn now, and she's going to talk about the tournament coming up. Good morning, Crossroads. We want to engage as many as of our church members in this endeavor. It's an outreach endeavor. It reaches beyond our church. We need volunteers within the church. We need your financial support. So you want to know how you can help. Um, you say, well, you can help us by reaching out to businesses that you know and you work with frequently. You've built a relationship. We have flyers that you can hand them. They can sign up, and we can then pursue the collection of their money. Um, you can volunteer to work with us on the day of the golf tournament and leading up to the golf tournament. There are many little tasks to be done, and they're big and small. So everybody has a role. Um, but most important, we're going to need financial support. Each of you could be a whole sponsor at a cost of $125. We can be a team sponsor at $500. And you don't have to play golf. You may have friends that play golf, and you just want to gift them with a game. Um, you can be a gold sponsor for $750 or a platinum sponsor for $1,000 or more. If you are not comfortable with asking for money, Pat and I don't mind, um, so you can just give us the leads and the contacts. We, we don't mind asking for your checks. Not at all. Um, and you can reach out and ask people you know that play golf, would they like to participate? The cost for a team is $300 or $75 a player. Um, but please donate your time leading up to the tournament. Um, and how about just talk it up? Um, Pat and I will be available after church in the lobby and if you want to sign up to volunteer now or if you want to go on and sign up as a whole sponsor or a platinum sponsor either way we'll be grateful for any monies we get but as pat said we went down there and we walked away with tears in our eyes these children are coming from unsafe places they're coming from families that have little and they're going into a place that is not inviting. It's not like going into a warm environment. The people there are good. They're kind. It's not a people issue. It's the way the presentation of the building is, wouldn't you say, Pat? And it's, it's just very sad. Our church acquired, our conference acquired this in 2016. And they had not planned to open for a period of time because there was renovations to be done, but there was a need. So they immediately opened the doors. And, um, you know, it is our responsibility that when God places it on your heart, 
you just can't close the door. So Pat and I strongly believe, as well as John and Brad, um, work's got to be done. Pat's husband, Brad, has offered to go and do the sketches for the bathroom remodels and to, to, to show the entire facility and what needs to be done in the future. So your support is greatly appreciated. Here are our flyers. So we're on Bethany Sharp. So thank you all so much. All right, and we have one more announcement. Um, she's going to be coming up here. Everyone give her a round of applause, please. Good morning. Um, I am going to talk to you very briefly, and I know that's hard for a lawyer with a microphone to do, but I will. We have, in the last several months, realized just how quickly life can change. We've done, as, as Pastor said the other Sunday, uh, what it was like eight funerals in the last um, it's, it's way too many. But one of the things that lawyers are able to help with is that planning for end of life and making sure you have your documents and stuff straight. And because this has hit some people and they've asked some questions, um, I talked with Pastor Josiah and the, and the board. We're going to be sponsoring on November 13th a clinic here at the, at the church for the church members and the community. There will be lawyers here to talk to you and answer questions about end of life planning. And you think, well, I don't really have a lot, so I don't need a will. Do you have things that are sentimental value that you want to leave to somebody? If you've got a favorite fishing pole that you want your grandchild to have, or if you've got a, a family Bible that you want to go to a specific child, well, I'm young and we're just newly married and we don't own a lot of stuff. Do you have children? You need a will so that it tells what happens to your children. My favorite reason for doing it, for having my will done, and I actually have mine done, but my favorite reason for having my will done is I get the last word because I get to tell people what I want done with my stuff and who handles the paperwork. And that's why we want to do it. So mark your calendars for November 13th at 10 o'clock here at the church. There will be lawyers here, and we will be talking to you about um, what documents you need and how you need to do them. And they'll be able to answer questions that I can't answer because I don't practice necessarily in that area. But there will be people here to do that. So mark your calendar November 13th. Invite your friends. It's going to be open to the community. This is something that everybody needs regardless. And ladies, just to... to driving home. The Proverbs 31 woman, I guarantee you, had her will and her power of attorney done and taken care of because she was always prepared. All right. All right. Pastor Charlie is going to go ahead and exhort us into worship. So, have it. Amen. What an awesome opportunity that not only do we get to share and we get to uh, participate in outside ministry and this is what the Turbyville this is what the golf tournament is this outside ministry we are ministering and we are raising money for these places to provide for these children who are coming in so pray about it and see what's going on also what an opportunity that God is providing for us to give us assistance in some things that we know through Cindy and through the people that she knows so come and take advantage of that opportunity amen All right, if we get our PowerPoint up, we're going to go into a time where we get to stand. If you can stand, please. And we are going to say our faith statement. All right. We are sword-drawn, word-ready, purpose-filled, 
We will not be denied. And in Jesus' name, we will do everything. Not somehow, but triumphantly. Yes. Yes. Hallelujah. We don't do anything halfway, especially when we're serving the Lord. We do it triumphantly. We also have a statement that we believe on our giving that we don't give to man and we don't give begrudgingly and we don't give just because God's going to give back to us but we give with a joyful heart and with a joyful spirit and we declare over our giving that we are going to be blessed by God through it. So let's join together in our statement. As we receive today's offering, we are believing the Lord for jobs and better jobs, raises and bonuses, benefits, sales and commissions, favorable settlements, estates and inheritances, interest and income, rebates and returns, checks in the mail, gifts and surprises, finding money, debts paid off, expenses decrease, blessing and increase. Thank you, Lord, for meeting all of my financial needs that I may have more than enough to give into the kingdom of God and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. Hallelujah! Yes. Hey, everybody ready to worship this morning? <laughs> I didn't know he was finished. I thought he was fixing to say something. Come on, are you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? You know, I see your faces every morning. Somebody just give me a big smile. Are you just happy to be here? Yes, come on. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And in his presence is fullness of joy. You see how that all goes together? We have nothing to fear in this crazy world. We have nothing to fear. He is here. We can praise him with confidence that he is in control. We can come together and worship knowing that he is in control. So let's say this morning together, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Come on, you believe that this morning? Come on, put your hands together. Of 
was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Come on, so glad. So glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord.
Oh, 
three people and say he is faithful come on testify to somebody he's been faithful to me Is it on now? Is it on now? Can you hear me? Testing? Awesome. Perfect. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray real quick? Lord God, we thank you for that time of worship where we were able to glorify your name and sing praises to you. And I felt extremely encouraged and felt joy rising up in my spirit. And Lord God, I thank you that we are able to meet today. I thank you that we live in this country where we are allowed to have religious freedom to meet, to praise you together, to not forsake the gathering of the brethren, even in these uncertain times. Lord God, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are sovereign, you are in control, and nothing happens unless you allow it to happen. You have not let go of control. The world is still in the palm of your hand. And Lord God, I am encouraged today as we meet together to dig into the words of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, I just pray you would speak through me, you'd pour out of me all the study I've been doing. Please bring it to my remembrance, Lord God, that we would take complex passages, simplify them, and apply them to our everyday lives so that we would be pleasing to you, Lord Jesus. We love you, God. We thank you for this day. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys today. Um, we are continuing on into the Sermon on the Mount session number two. Um, whenever I was, you know, really thinking, God, why, why am I doing this? What's the goal of this? Oh, I totally forgot. Children's Church. Miss Marty, thank you. 
Children's Church. If you are going to Children's Church today, you are meeting Miss Marty in the back. I got used to us not having Children's Church for a couple weeks. Miss Marty in the back right there in the purple sweatshirt. If you are going to Children's Church today, meet Miss Marty back there. I'll give it a second more. They're coming. All right, they're coming. All right. Cool. All right. Anyways, whenever I was thinking of the series, what's the point of this? Obviously, we're digging into the teachings of Jesus. And if we claim to be Christians, we should probably know what Jesus was saying. Correct? We should, if we claim he is our Messiah, our Lord, we should probably understand his teachings, know them well, and apply them to our lives. So number one, the whole goal of this series is, is to take a complex passage a complex teaching of Jesus. That's number one. We take the passage. Number two is we're breaking it down into understandable parts. All right, because like we said, three, listen, and we're, we're dealing with one passage, one, one scripture today, four verses, one, four verses of Jesus you could expound and write a whole book upon. So we're taking our time working our way through this. Number three is to simplify it, and number four is to apply it. Because what's the point of us meeting here together if we're not going to take the information we learn to let it transform our hearts and then apply it in our lives? So what we're going to do today is, we're first off, our, our passage, if you want to write it down, we're not getting into it just yet, is Matthew. We're just carrying on Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. But what we're first going to, under, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the history a little bit. Today is a little bit of a history lesson. Um, I, it, it is very applicable. And listen, we're going to be dealing with the law, the law which the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, live by. And I know we know it's complex, right? But the, the funny thing is the law itself is not, is not complex. It's actually very simple. But man took the law and made it complex. Leave it to human beings to make things complex, right? To make things difficult. So first we're going to look at the new authority. All right, the new authority. And I, I made the PowerPoint simple. You can write it down. It's simple for you. All right, this section of the teaching of Jesus is one of the most important. And this, this, this is the next section covering over, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. All right, so this section is one of the most important in the whole New Testament. And here's why. In it, Jesus speaks with an authority which no other man had ever dreamed of assuming. The authority which Jesus assumed always amazed those who came into contact with him. And, and, and each one of these statements starts off like this. You have heard it, it is said, but I say to you. So Jesus was then asserting himself as the authority. He's the authority over the law, over these man-made rules. Right at the beginning of his ministry, after he had been teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, it is said of his hearers in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Actually, at the end of this book, Matthew concludes his account of the Sermon on the Mount with the words, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, we in modern-day America, it's hard for us to realize just how shocking this would have been, all right, for someone to speak with this authority, because the day and age we live in, everyone thinks they're an expert. Everyone thinks that when they speak, they have an authority about them, and I believe social media has played a major part in that, that people have a voice who should never had a voice. So in our day and age, we hear people speaking with authority all the time, do we not? Everyone thinks they have an air of authority about them. But in this day and age, to the Jews, this was not so. Because to the Jew, the law was the absolute authority. The law was the absolute last say. So it is impossible for us to exaggerate the place that the law had in the reverence of the Jews. Listen here. The first act of every synagogue service, so their church services in their synagogue, they would take the roles of the law, 
from the ark in which they were stored, and they would carry them around the congregation that the congregation might show them reverence to them. So, yo, that was as if I took the Bible and I just walked row by row and we just kind of looked at the Bible. That's what they would do. They would show their reverence to the actual written law. That is how highly the Jews thought of the law and reverenced the law. And listen, when we get into these sayings of Jesus where he says, you have heard, but now I say to you, Jesus takes these sacred laws five times and Jesus quotes the law only to contradict it and to instate himself as a place of authority. So you could imagine, we, I, I feel like we've always wondered, why did they hate Jesus so much? Because Jesus took what they saw as the most holy, sacred thing in the world and he inserted himself above it as the ultimate authority. He claimed the authority to the point to point out the inadequacies of the most sacred writings in the world and to correct them out of his own wisdom. The Greeks define exosia, which is the word authority, as the power to add and the power to take away. Jesus claimed that power even with regard to that which the Jews believed to be the unchanging and unchangeable word of God. Listen, no one had ever heard anything like this before. Do we understand that? Jesus is wholly unique. Wholly unique. It is just him. The great Jewish teachers had always, always had characteristic phrases in their teachings, all right? The, the characteristic phrase of the prophet was, thus saith the Lord. It was never the prophet saying, I say. It was never the prophet saying, this is my opinion. The prophet, every time he, he started to speak, he said, thus saith the Lord. The characteristic phrase of the scribe and the rabbi was, there is a teaching that. All right, so they would always take a teaching from the past and then teach on it. The scribe nor the rabbi never dared to express even an opinion of his own unless he could support it with quotes from the great teachers of the past. Independence was not a quality that they had. It was not them speaking on their own authority. They were always speaking on another authority. But to Jesus, a statement required no supporting authority other than that he made it. He was his own authority. Do, do we understand how revolutionary this was to the Jews for a man to come out of nowhere and speak with an authority that was not referencing the law? He spoke with a deeper authority, a deeper wisdom, which was completely revolutionary to the people of this day. Clearly, one of two things must be true about Jesus. Either he is insane or he is unique. Either he's a megalomaniac or else he truly was the son of God. Do we understand how, the, yo, this is why time after time in the Gospels, we see that people were split over Jesus. Do we understand that? Even the religious rulers were split over Jesus. Some were saying, no, he's demon-possessed, he's evil. Others were saying, how can a man do these things? How could a, man, how could a demon-possessed man do these miracles and these wonders? Do we understand today people are still split over Jesus? Jesus makes us question everything. Do you understand that? When you genuinely hear the teachings of Jesus and you genuinely approach Jesus with an open heart, it makes you question everything because it makes you question your heart. Listen, the amazing thing about authority is that it is self-evidencing. You know when someone has authority and when someone does not have authority. You know when someone speaks with authority and when someone lacks it. No sooner does a person begin to teach than we know at once whether or not that person has the authority to teach. Listen, authority is like an atmosphere around a person. The person does not have to claim authority. They just walk in it. Do we understand that? When a person truly has authority, they don't constantly have to be belittling people. They don't constantly have to be putting themselves in powers of position. They walk in authority. And it was supremely so with Jesus. 
That's why the Jews hated him. That's why people hated him, because Jesus walked in authority. He didn't have to argue. He didn't have to fight. His word was enough. Jesus took the highest wisdom of men and corrected it because he was who he was. He did not need to argue. It was sufficient for him to speak. Some of you need to write that down and put it on your mirror. It is sufficient for him to speak. Jesus has the final say. You don't have to argue with your situation. You don't have to argue with people. Jesus has the final say. Listen, no one can honestly face Jesus and honestly listen to him without feeling that he is God's last word beside which all other words of man are inadequate and all other wisdom of man is out of date. It is Jesus. Jesus has the final say. The new standard. The new standard. This is carrying on, right? I told you we're dealing with two concepts in these next passages, the new standard. But listen, but as startling as it was to see Jesus, for these people to see Jesus speaking in authority, the standard which he put before men was even more startling. Why? We're about to see. Jesus said that in God's sight, it was not only the man who committed murder who was guilty, but the man who was angry with his brother was liable to judgment. It was no longer just the action, it was the desire to commit the action. Do we understand that? The law held you accountable for your actions. The law gave you rules and regulations to live by. Your thoughts and desires were nowhere taken into account with the law. But Jesus came and Jesus said, not only am I going to hold you accountable for what you do, I'm going to hold you accountable for what you think. Hold up now, y'all. Listen, it was not only the man who committed adultery who was guilty, it was the man who allowed the unclean desire to settle into his heart who was also guilty. This was a teaching that was entirely new to the Jews, something which men to this day have not fully grasped. Have any of us fully grasped this? Have any of us been perfected morally on the inside? No, we still all have evil desires, wrong desires. It was Jesus' teaching that it was not enough to commit murder. The only thing sufficient was never even to wish to commit murder. It was Jesus' teaching that it was not enough not to commit adultery. The only thing sufficient was never even to wish to commit adultery. Hey, it, it, may, it may very well be that we have never physically harmed someone. We have never physically attacked someone. But you can't tell me in your worst of times you have never pictured that in your head. You're like, oh, Pastor Josiah. No, I'm holy. No, you're not. There's, there's been a point in time where you had very deep anger towards someone that could have easily lashed out in physical contact. That in itself is also a sin. It was Jesus' teaching that thoughts are as important as deeds and that it is not enough not to commit a sin. The only thing that is enough is not to ever wish or want to commit the sin. Do we see this standard that Jesus was raising? We thought the law was hard. No, Jesus is raising this standard even higher. It was Jesus' teaching that a man is not judged only by his deeds, but is judged even more by the desires which never even emerged in deeds. By the world's standard, a person is a good person if they never do one of the forbidden things, right? One of these horrible things we talk about. The world is not concerned to judge the thoughts of a person, right? The law is not going to arrest you because you had a thought because they'll never know what you were thinking. They'll never know. You can't get arrested for a thought. But by Jesus' standard, a person is not a good person until they never even desire to do a forbidden thing. Jesus was intensely concerned with a person's thoughts, which means three things. One, Jesus was profoundly right, for Jesus' way is the only way to safety and security. Listen to me. To some extent, every person is a split personality. What do, Pastor, what do you mean by that? We have the demon on this shoulder. 
we have the angel on this shoulder. Hey, go do this. Hey, don't do that, right? Our conscience, it drives us. It pulls us, right? Our flesh and our spirit, they're driving us two different ways. It's, it's like the, the old um, Indian proverb that talks about you have two wolves inside of you, and whichever one you feed is going to come stronger and destroy the other, right? There's the good and the evil. We are split personalities because we are constantly in, in, this, in this to and fro of good and evil, right? We're being pulled from what we know we're supposed to do and what we want to do. As long as a person is like this, an inner battle is going on inside of them. One voice is inciting them to take the forbidden thing. The other voice is forbidding them to take it. So as long as there's this inner tension, this inner conflict, life must be insecure, right? We're unstable. We're insecure. We're not going one way or the other, but we're stuck in that middle spot. Listen, the only way to safety, Jesus said, is to eradicate the desire for the forbidden thing forever. Then and then alone is life is safe. So it's not good enough for us just not to act, right? Our thoughts and desires must not be on it. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, unless you, not, not only if you're not committing the act, you're still not safe. Why? Because there's still that desire in you pulling if you allow that desire to live inside of you. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, not only can you not commit the act, you have to eradicate those evil desires within you. Because the Father sees that. Number two, if that is so, then God alone can judge men, truly judge men. We see only a person's outward actions, we as human beings. God alone sees the secrets of the heart. And there, listen, there will be many people whose outward actions are perfect, right? A according to it, right? We think, oh, they got it all together, right? We got it all, they got it all together, man. They, they are picture perfect. They got the perfect family, the perfect life. But many of those people, their inward desires are evil, and they are condemned by their very own thoughts before the Lord. There are many people who can stand the judgment of men, right? People like they got to put together, which is bound to a judgment of externals, right? How we look from the outside looking in, but whose goodness collapses before the all-seeing eye of God. Number three, and if that be so, it means that every one of us is in default, for there is none who can stand this judgment of God. Even, listen, even if we lived a life of moral perfection, there is none who can say that they never experienced a forbidden desire in their hearts. We cannot stand before him by our own moral goodness. For the inner perfection, the only thing that is enough for a person to say is that they themselves are dead and Christ now lives in them. I have been crucified with Christ, said Paul. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2, verses 19 through 20. So the new standard, I have it up here, the new standard kills all pride and forces us to Jesus, which who alone can enable us to rise to that standard which he himself has set before us. So do, are we starting to see how revolutionary Jesus was in the fact he was the new authority? He was stating himself above the thing they held as the ultimate authority. Jesus took those teachings and now was saying, no, you have heard, but now I say that I am says. So he's putting himself above, but not only is he showing himself as the authority, he's changing the standard. Could you imagine how horrifying that would be to a Pharisee who everything was the outside appearance and to the scribes who everything was the outside appearance and the lawmakers who everything was the outside appearance for now a man to come on the scene and hold you accountable for what your desires were? Y'all, this is why I say time and time again, it's not only our actions and our words that matter, but our thoughts matter. Our deepest desires matter. What are we dwelling on? What are we giving our time to? Okay, now, all right, now I've laid the groundwork for what we're getting into. Now we're going to read. So now we're get, actually getting into it. This is Christ fulfills the law. Would you please stand with me 
as I read the word, our section for today. And if you have your Bibles, you can read, read along with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And listen, listen, I, I know that was a lot, but sometimes I feel like we in the American culture, we just don't understand. We just don't get why Jesus was so revolutionary. This is why this is important. All right, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely, I, as I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the, the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. You can be seated. So what we're stepping into is very, is very complex. But I told you what we're doing is we're taking complex passages, we're breaking them down into understandable parts, we're simplifying them, and we're applying them. And we're, we're about to go through, through a bunch of this. This saying of Jesus was fully loaded and fully packed. Um, and we're going to get into that. But what's important is that the, the applicable side is literally only four, four words, only four words long. It's a four-word phrase. And so the beauty of this is that when man takes something and makes it complex, God never meant for it to be that hard. Do we understand that? God never meant for it to be this hard to follow him. God never meant for it to be this hard to please him, to serve him, to live for him. But humans, of course, we always have to complicate everything, right? Because we think our knowledge is greater. We think our understanding is greater. Even than God, we think our understanding is greater majority of the time. So what the Jews did, the, the scribes, we'll see in a minute, because we're going to go through a little bit of a history lesson. The scribes took... The, the, the law, the original law, the Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch, they took this, and what they did was they derived thousands upon thousands of man-made rules and regulations just from these simple things. So we're going to look at this, and we're going to look how Jesus came not to destroy this law, but to fulfill it, because we're going to, under, we're going to, y'all, when we leave here, my goal is for us to actually understand what the law is, to actually understand what they're talking about, so we're not just stuck in la-la land of the 21st century America, but we're able to actually read the Bible and comprehend what is being said. So we're going to break this down into three parts. The first one is the, the eternal law. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to have a slide with each section. And then after that, one more slide. That's going to be the conclusion of the section. But you don't have to write the conclusion. It's just a conclusion, right? I'm not trying to overload you with notes. But if you want to write it, please be my, be my guest. At a first reading, it might well be held that this is the most astonishing statement that Jesus made in the whole Sermon on the Mount. In this statement, Jesus lays down the eternal character of the law, right? Because what did he say? I didn't come to destroy. I came to fulfill. And what? Jesus is eternal. And yet Paul can say Christ is the end of the law, Romans 10, 4. Again and again, Jesus broke what the Jews called the law. Again and again, Jesus broke this law. He did not observe the hand washings that the law laid down. He healed sick people on the Sabbath, although the law forbade such healings. He was, in fact, condemned and crucified as a lawbreaker. Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified and condemned as a lawbreaker. Jesus seems to lay it down that the law is so sacred that not the smallest detail of it will ever pass away. Some people have been so puzzled by this saying that they didn't believe Jesus could have possibly said this. However, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would make this statement when we come to see what it really means. So the law can mean four different possibilities, all right? 
The Jews use the expression in four different ways. Number one, they used it to mean the Ten Commandments. Number two, they used it to mean the first five books of the Bible, that part of the Bible which is known as the Pentateuch. Number three, they used the phrase, the law and the prophets, to mean the whole of Scripture. They used it as a, com a comprehensive description of what we would call the whole Old Testament. Number four, which is this is the one, they used it to mean the oral or the scribal law. So in the New Testament, when we see them talking about the law, this is the oral or the scribal law. In the time of Jesus, it was the last meaning, which we just talked about, and it was, in fact, the scribal law which both Jesus and Paul so utterly condemned. So what then was this scribal law? What, what was this? All right, this is where we're going to get into a little bit of history. In the Old Testament itself, we find very few rules and regulations. All right? What we do find are great broad principles which a man must himself or a woman take and interpret under God's guidance and apply it to the individual situations in life. In the Ten Commandments, we find no rules or regulations at all, do we? There's no rules and regulations. They're principles. They are each one of them a great principle out of which a man must find his own rules for life. To the later Jews, these great principles did not seem enough. So, so they said, all right, that, that's too broad for us. They held that the law was divine and that in it God said his last word. All right, so the law, that was it. That's all God's ever going to speak to us. We got what we need. And that therefore everything must be in it. If a thing was not in the law, implicitly, easy to find, it must be there implicitly. So we're going to dig it out, right? So, so if it's not there, it's got to be there, right? It's, it's got to be in there, these specific, y'all, so specific that everything in life had a rule. Everything in life had a regulation. They therefore argue that out of the law, it must be possible to deduce a rule and a regulation for every possible situation in life. So there arose a race of men called the scribes, who made it their business of life to reduce the great principles of the law to literally thousands upon thousands of rules and regulations. So this is the day and age Jesus is living in. And just, just to show you how extreme the way they lived was according to these laws and regulations and how silly it will seem, I'm going to read you an excerpt from a commentary by William Barclay. The law lays it down that the Sabbath day is to be kept holy and that on it no work is to be done. That is a great principle. But the Jewish legalists had a passion for definition. So they asked, what is work? All kinds of things were classified as work. For instance, to carry a burden on the Sabbath day is to work. But next, burden has to be defined. So the scribal law lays it down that a burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one drink, hollow honey enough to put upon a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member of the family, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make a pen, and so on endlessly. So they spent endless hours arguing whether a man could or could not lift a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath, whether a tailor committed a sin if he went out with a needle in his robe, whether a woman might wear a brooch or false hair, even if a man might go out on the Sabbath with artificial teeth or an artificial limb, if a man might lift his child on the Sabbath day. That is directly from the law that Jesus lived in. Do, do you understand how meticulous this law was that they took everything in life and defined it and made a rule? Y'all, men could not carry their own babies on the Sabbath. I bet those were some mad mamas in that day and age. That's all I got to say. Hey, does that mean I don't have to change diapers on Sundays? 
That's probably a now. Um, but listen, that's how meticulous this was, that everything in life was defined. If you said, what is work? Definition. Did you understand? Did you understand? Everything they did had a rule and regulation. Everything. So that is the world that Jesus came into, that their definition of the law was this nature. So the scribes were the men who worked out these rules and regulations. The Pharisees, who name means the separated ones, were the men who had separated themselves from all the ordinary activities of life to keep all these rules and regulations. So we can understand why the Pharisees, time and time again, thought that they were all that in a bag of chips. They thought that they were the best thing since sliced bread. They were walking around like they owned everyone because they held themselves to a superior morality than everyone else. But we know time and time again that the corrupted morality of their inner being was shown time and time again. Right? It's not about the outward appearance. For many generations, and this is crazy, the scribal law was never written down. For hundreds of years, this law that they held to, these thousands upon thousands upon rules, were never even written down. They were passed from generation to generation. It was the oral law, and it was handed down in the memory of generations of scribes. These laws, listen, and y'all, this is crazy. These laws, just the laws and regulations, were translated and put into the form of a book in English. This book was 700 pages long. Seven, of just rules and regulations, I'm talking small print, I looked up the book. All these rules and regulations, 700 pages long in the English language. Commentaries to explain these rules and regulations are written 12 volumes long. 12 volumes long. Do you understand how big a volume is? Going in-depth detail of these rules? Y'all, this is what these people were held to the standard of living by. Fickle, petty rules and regulations made by men. To the strict Orthodox Jew in the time of Jesus, religion, serving God, was a matter of keeping thousands of legalistic rules and regulations. They regarded these petty rules and regulations as literally matters of life and death and eternal security. Clearly, clearly Jesus did not mean that not one of these rules and regulations was to pass away. Repeatedly he broke them himself and repeatedly he condemned them. That is certainly not what Jesus meant by the law, for that is the kind of law that both Jesus and Paul condemned. So what, what, what was this law? What is it? What did Jesus mean by the law? He said that he had not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. That is to say, listen, he came to really bring out the real meaning of the law. Not what man had made it to be, but the actual law. And how, why would Jesus know this? Because he's the literal word of God. He is the law of God. So what was the real meaning of the law? Even behind the scribal and oral law, there was one great principle which the scribes and the Pharisees had imperfectly grasped. The one great principle was this. A man must seek God's will. That is the greatest principle at the, at the beginning of the law, is that man must seek God's will. And that, when they know it, they must dedicate their whole life to, to the obeying of it. Listen, the scribes and Pharisees were right in seeking God's will and profoundly right in dedicating their lives to obeying it. They were wrong in finding that in their own man-made rules and regulations. So their hearts were good in the fact that they thought they were pleasing God, but they, in essence, they were not following God. They were following man-made rules and regulations. So what then is the real principle behind the whole law? 
that principle which Jesus came to fulfill, the true meaning that he came to show. When we look at the Ten Commandments, which are the essence and the foundation of all the law, we can see that, there is, that their whole meaning can be summed up in two words. All right, two words, reverence and respect. Reverence for God and for the name of God. Reverence for God's day, the Sabbath. Respect for parents, respect for life, respect for property, respect for personality, respect for the truth and for another person's good name, respect for oneself so that wrong desires may never master us. Two, it's as simple as this to sum up the entire law, which we'll get to the end, but it's reverence of God and respect of our fellow man. That simple. Leave it to humans to take something that simple and make it into what it was of no reverence for God, but reverence for man and no respect of man. Do we see that? Do we see how we as humans took this beautiful eternal law and we flipped it? These are the fundamental principles behind the Ten Commandments. Principles of reverence of God and respect for our fellow men and for ourselves. Without them, there can be no such thing as the law. On them, all law is based. Reverence of God, respect for man. Man, we made things so hard. Justice, said the Greeks, consists in giving to God and to men what, that which is their due. Listen, Jesus came to show in actual life what it meant to reverence God and what it meant to respect man. Jesus came to be the eternal example of these principles, of these concepts, of the true eternal law. That reverence and that respect did not consist in obeying multitudes of petty rules and regulations. They listen, they consisted not in sacrifice, but in mercy. Not in legalism, but in love. Not in prohibitions which demanded that men should not do things, but the instruction to mold their lives on the positive, listen, commandment to love. To love God and to love people. It's that simple, folks. The reverence and the respect, the reverence and the respect which are the basis of the Ten Commandments can never pass away. They are the permanent stuff of man's relationship to God and to his fellow man. Do we understand that? This, this is the eternal law. The reverence and the respect which are the basis of the Ten Commandments will never pass away. They are the permanent stuff of man's relationship to God and to his fellow man. Now, I feel like some of you are wondering, Pastor Josiah, why so, why so much? Why, why all this? Because we have to fully understand the words of Jesus. Do, do we understand that? Do we understand we are not only doing ourselves a disjustice if we do not study the words of Jesus, we are doing Jesus a disjustice if we do not take his words and heed them. I originally was just going to skip over this passage, honestly. Because this isn't one of those exciting salt and light type messages where we can be like, yeah, let's be that, let's do that. This is one of the things we have to understand why it was so important that Jesus came. First off, if Jesus never came, you and I would have no possibility of being saved. You understand that, right? We're Gentiles. So first off, that's incredible, first and foremost. But even if we were what they would call God-seekers in the Old Testament, we would, have had lived, we would have had to live according to this law, these petty rules and regulations, the things of man. And number three is the law and the gospel. When Jesus spoke as he did about the law and the gospel, he was implicitly laying down certain broad principles. Number one, he was saying that there is a definite continuation between the past and the present. He did not come to destroy the past. He came to fulfill all things. 
We must never look on life as a kind of battle between the past and the present. The present grows out of the past. Who in here is thankful for their past? Who in here is thankful for the things they've experienced? Why? Because it has molded you, shaped you, and led you to the cross. We're thankful for our past because we've grown out of the past. There had to be the law before there could be the gospel. There had to be the law before the gospel could come. Listen, we as, we as human beings had to learn the difference between right and wrong. There had to be a standard. Men had to learn their own, men and women had to learn their own inability to cope with the demands of the law and to respond to the commands of God. Men had to learn a sense of sin and unworthiness and inadequacy. The law had to come to show the need for a savior. Do we understand that? The law came to point out sin. Listen, we as human beings blame the past for many things, and often rightly so, because we go through hard things in life. But it's equally and even more necessary to acknowledge our doubt, sorry, our debt for the past, because it's made us who we are today. As Jesus saw it, it is man's duty neither to forget nor to attempt to destroy the past, but to build upon the foundation of the past. We ourselves are living upon other people's labors. You understand, we did not build this nation. We did not build this church. We are now living upon other people's labors, what they strove to build. And we must so labor that other people will enter into our work, our labor. We must build something for the next generations to come upon. Number two, in this passage, Jesus definitely warns men not to think that Christianity is easy. Men might say, Christ is the end of the law. Now I can do what I like. People might think that all the duties, all the responsibilities, all the demands are gone. But it is Jesus' warning, listen, that the righteousness of the Christian must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what, what did Jesus mean by that, right? That's kind of a hard saying. What does it mean that our righteousness must exceed? So the motive under which the scribes and Pharisees lived was the motive of the law. Their one aim and desire was to satisfy the demands of the law. Correct? They were living according to the law. Their desire was to satisfy the demands of the law. And theoretically, theoretically, it is perfectly possible to satisfy the demands of the law, right? In one sense, there can come a time when a man or a woman can say, I have done all that the law demands. The law no longer has a claim on me. But the motive under which the Christian lives is the motive of love. The Christian's one desire is to show their wondering gratitude for the love wherewith God loved him in Jesus Christ. Now listen, it is not even theoretically possible to satisfy the claims of love. There are no claims of love. Love is eternal. Love lasts forever. If we love someone with all of our hearts, we are bound to feel that even if we gave them a lifetime service and adoration, if we offered them the sun, moon, and stars, we would still still not have, have offered enough to them. The Jew aimed to satisfy the law of God and, the and to the demands of the law, there will always be a limit. But the Christian aims to show gratitude for the love of God and to the claims of love, there is no limit of time or eternity. Do, are, are we seeing the difference? Listen, how do we surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes? We serve out of love. Why? Because when we serve out of love and we love God and we love Jesus, his righteousness is then imputed to us. Do you understand that? Jesus was saying you as a human being can never, can never amount to this level of righteousness. 
But that's why he came. Do we understand that? Jesus was furthermore showing our inadequacy to save ourselves. Jesus was showing us that only his righteousness was enough. Jesus set before people not the law of God, but the love of God. Do we understand before this, I I spoke on Wednesday on mercy, giving mercy and receiving mercy. And in that day and age, in that day and age of the Jews, they did not think of God as a personal God. Actually, to them, there was no way God could ever have a human experience because he was God. He's too different. He's too holy. He can never experience what we as humans go through. So their idea of God was a distant, non-personal God, a far-off God. A good God, but a far-off, distant God. There was no relationship. There was no loving Father. It was just Yahweh. He was distant. He was set apart. So when Jesus came and radicalized everything, he said, no, it's no longer according to the law that you have to live. God is a loving Father. It revolutionized everything in the minds of these men. Long ago, Augustine said that the Christian life, and I've always loved this quote, could be summed up in this one phrase. Love God. Listen. Love God and do what you like. Listen, not, not, not go off and be crazy, not go off and do whatever you want to do. Listen, but when we realize how, how God has loved us, the one desire of life is to answer to that love. So everything you do now, when you love God and live the way you like, everything you like is what God likes. Your desires are now God's desires. We become morally good on the inside, not just morally good on the outside. And that is the greatest task in all the world. For it presents a person with a task the like of which the man who thinks in terms of law never dreams of and with an obligation more binding than the obligation of any law. It's love. You're doing it because you want to, not because you have to. Listen, Jesus rejected the man-made law. I want want y'all to write this one down because this this brings it all together. Y'all, we're already almost done because we're dealing with the law today, right? We're not not getting too crazy. Jesus rejected the man-made law and accepted the true eternal law of God. This is the law he came to fulfill, giving to God the reverence he deserves and the respect due to our fellow man. When you are motivated by love and not rules and regulations that are made by man, listen, this this is beautiful, your heart is transformed instead of trapped. That's the whole message of Jesus. That's the whole gospel in its, in its essence is that our heart was trapped in sin and condemnation and guilt and shame. But when we come to understand the love of Jesus, our hearts are transformed. So to sum up all this, in a minute we're going to stand up and read this final scripture, which is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40. But listen, it is all summed up in four words. We say it all the time. Love God love people. So what we as humans took and made crazy, dude, y'all understand we've been talking for like 30 plus minutes. That whole law I just expounded upon, are, who in here is thankful we don't have to live according to that? Seriously, who is thankful? Who is thankful that Jesus came now that we can live in love? The commandment of love is so far surpassing greater the glory than the law itself, which is man-made rules and regulations. Who is glad that man cannot judge you? I'd probably be dead by now. I'd probably be put on death row by now if man could judge me. But the mercies and kindness of God stretched throughout eternity to grab us, to send us Jesus, to show us the way of love, the way of the Father. Will you please stand with me as we read this final passage, and I'm going to close this out.
Matt, if you want to read with me, please do. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. It's beautiful. I, lo- I love this. Jesus, Jesus takes the Pharisees, our scribes are attacking him with the law, and Jesus just makes it so beautiful and so simple. That's why I love Jesus. Jesus takes the most complex and makes it so simple and applicable. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The entire scripture is fulfilled in loving our God and loving our fellow man. Will you please pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we are able to take complex passages and simplify them, but more than that, to apply them in our everyday lives. Lord God, I pray that as we go out of this house, when the church leaves this building, because this is not the church, we are the church. When we leave this building, we will exemplify and apply loving you and loving people. That we would make our Christian life simple, so simple and applicable that we would simply love you and give our devotion and adoration and glory to you but then we would give respect to our fellow man and treat them with honor and dignity. So Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this teaching, this in-depth, complex teaching that you made so simple for us. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for this day to gather. And I just pray that Holy Spirit, you would empower us to love you more and to love people more. In your mighty name we pray, amen and amen. We love you guys. Pastor Betty, you have food across the street. There's food across the street. Um, my uncle Mark and Aunt Michelle had to leave. That's why we're not having music. Um, please be praying for his uncle. He is dying of cancer. He has about a week long to live. Please be praying for my uncle Mark and his family. We love you guys. Glad to see you guys today. Y'all have a fantastic week.